Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live. I'm Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and thank you for being with us as we talk about faith in our lives. Our special guest today has two simultaneous careers, which we'll talk about, and he's a published author, he composes hymns, and he's an accomplished musician. The story he's going to share with us is a story of two lives interrupted by unexpected disease, pain, suffering, brokenness, and finally, coming to the end of self and knowing our Lord in a fresh and deep way. Stay tuned to hear the story of a couple's journey through life-threatening disease into the arms of the living God. Thank you for joining us for Hill Country Institute Live, the program that brings you together with Christian leaders, authors, and pastors to discuss major issues of our time. We seek to encourage and equip followers of Jesus Christ to share His heart and mind in all that we do. We have a special program today with someone who will be talking about yielding to God in our difficult times and His power to carry us in our weakness and need. What does it mean to give up self to be what God has made us to be? Stay with us. You will not want to miss the story of how God has blessed a couple in their illness and distress. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to hear podcasts of our past radio programs on topics including faith and work, science and art, fighting human trafficking, the spiritual formation of C.S. Lewis, and much more. Our guests have included Dan Davis, Andy Crouch, John Burke, Mayor Ivy Taylor of San Antonio, Jeff Duzer on faith and business, and others who are leaders in a wide variety of aspects of faith and culture. The website also offers audio and video from our past conferences and seminars on faith and science, art, and more. So please join us there for our radio programs, and also you can listen to the radio programs on your podcast app as Hill Country Institute Live. The program is supported by donations, and if you can donate to support this program, we would really appreciate it. Visit hillcountryinstitute.org. For donations over $100, we have your choice of books, including our guest's book, Touchable, Spiritual Insights from a Time of Suffering, or books on C.S. Lewis or Faith and Culture. Contact us at 512-680-7993 for additional information. Visit hillcountryinstitute.org to donate, and please contact us if you would like to sponsor this program. Now let's welcome our special guest, Brian Barber. Brian, it's a great honor and privilege to welcome you to our program today. Larry, it's great to be here, I tell you. It's, um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, I have too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in reading your book and knowing your story and being part of it, uh, uh, I think it's just been ideal for our audience to hear. So, uh, you know, Brian, Brian and I are in a Bible study together. And uh, Brian, just to help people to get to know you a little bit, I mentioned earlier that you're you're a musician. Uh, do you think yeah. you, you came by that yeah. in an inherited capacity and skill? Or yeah. What um, do you think? Yeah, my father was a uh, very accomplished jazz piano player in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was a... Uh, music teacher, uh, accomplished piano player, masters in, in music. Um, so my whole family, my older sister's probably the most talented of all of us, very good piano player, uh, artist as well. My younger sister is an extraordinary jazz vocalist. So, I mean, it's all through the family. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, where, did, where did you grow up? What part of the- I grew up in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And what what brought you to Texas? Uh, I came down to Texas in, uh, when was this, 78 mm-hmm. to go to school. I graduated 78 high school. Came down to go to North Texas State, and I wanted to get a music degree. But I realized right away that I didn't want to spend four years uh, getting a music degree because I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to go into the schools and teach or anything like that. So you felt like that was what you more or less have to do. Yeah, right, to do. right. Mm-hmm. So I got out of that, and I went to the business school. So here I am, this guy 
this guy with long hair down to my shoulders, you know, <laughs> yeah. with a backpack, going to the business school with these guys, all these shortcuts and their <laughs> briefcases and everything. Read the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, right. Yeah, I had to read, exactly. <laughs> no, but it was a it was a good move. So I I stayed down here in Texas in the Denton area, and I actually came to Christ back then, but um, seventy nine. Mm-hmm. and um, was uh, attending Denton Bible Church, which at the time was very, just starting out, very small. And really, that's where I kind of cut my teeth, if you would. I really gained an understanding of Christ and what all this was about, mm-hmm. and it stuck. Um, and I was there until um, until 86, and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to go to seminary. So I go up to... Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity. I don't know if you're familiar with that school yeah, certainly. in mm-hmm. Chicago. Yeah, it's a fine school, yeah. And I go up there, and I want to study uh, philosophy of religion. And I go up there, move, and I realize, I find out that they have, they're, they're canceling the program. So I kind of had to reorient myself. Wow, that, that's startling, yeah. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> so I ended up back in Fort Wayne and just kind of found my way into construction. I'm not sure. Uh, I build homes. Mm-hmm. And that's how I make a living. And I, it's a very peculiar thing because that's not in my family. And um, I don't know what it was. It's just that I was drawn to home building. Sure. So I got involved with a friend's father who was a uh, remodeler, contractor. And I'm 27 years old. I'm on the job. I'm banging nails. And, you know, I'm painting. I'm, uh, I'm laying um, uh, roof and uh, you know I'm just learning from the ground up yeah and um, really liked it so I've been in home building ever since what my gosh 87 and I mentioned earlier that you have another profession too yeah and you, you keep them both going simultaneously yeah what's, what's I, this other thing and how does it relate to building it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> okay so I always get the same reaction you know how did you put those two together <laughs> yeah I always had when I was at uh, Denton Bible Church I Developed a lot of good friendships, and a lot of these guys were either going to seminary, and some of them were going into the counseling profession. And um, just this idea of why we do what we do, and and who are we, and all this stuff really melds together, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I was drawn to um, to counseling, and I took a couple classes. This was in '97. My goodness, I took a couple classes down at at the time Southwest Texas State, now Texas State, mm-hmm. and thought, yeah, I kind of like this. Before I knew it, I was halfway through the program, and I thought, well, I better just stay at it, and I got my degree in that. You got momentum. I got momentum, yeah. right, and mm-hmm. I stayed at it. So I got a degree in professional counseling, and then went on and got licensed as a licensed professional counselor here in the state of Texas in 2004, and I have a, a, pr- a part-time practice um, ever since. Well, that's 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 quite a combination. It doesn't, it? yeah, it doesn't fit. Other than the fact that we've talked about where, <laughs> if I build a house for somebody, they definitely need counseling. So I kind of get it coming and going on that. Well, well, Brian, Brian and I are in a Bible study <laughs> called Men of Waterloo. We meet on Friday mornings at Waterloo at three sixty and twenty two twenty two, and uh, that's where I got to know Brian. But I didn't get to know him as Brian. I, it was a, I was there probably over a year before I realized that his real name was Brian. That's what right. do the guys call you? From day one, they've called me Psycho Builder. And nobody in that group really knows my name. Very few people. You're one of them that knows me. And really, honestly, I don't think anybody refers to me as Brian. I think they all refer to me as Psycho Builder. I think so. Yeah. Or just Psycho. Oh, just Psycho. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I thought this poor guy, his parents named him Psycho. So. 
<laughs> but it was good to know he had a real name. So, you know, you 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 were here with your your, your two professions, your lovely wife Laura. Yeah. Um, you're living a good home. Life was good. Yeah. Uh, you had a in, in Brian's book, by the way, uh, which is really a good read. Touchable spiritual insights from a time of suffering uh, is something I highly recommend because it's it, it's a story and then it's a series of is it fair to say reflections you know yeah yeah because each yeah. each chapter you know two to five or six pages not very long mm-hmm. are, are, are a series of things that Brian reflected on during his wife's illness mm-hmm. so uh, in, in in one one chapter it's titled expecting easy mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in a lot of other places, you, you write about what we expect, mm. that we we observe the good life. You yeah. know, we see the commercials. Uh, we, we observe people in, in our culture doing well and expecting to do well. Yeah. So this phrase, expecting easy, mm-hmm. and this thing you, you were experiencing, tell, tell us how that fits together. Yeah, and, and it's something that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I wouldn't have looked at, at me before all of this happened, before Laura's diagnosis as someone who was expecting an easy life, as someone who was buying into kind of the American idea mm-hmm. of life mm-hmm. is to be about pleasure and comfort and all that. But when this happened, when the diagnosis happened, it like flushed all of that to the surface. And I, and, and I was taken by surprise at how I really did expect that, mm-hmm. how I was really thrown that how could this happen to us this happens to other people. Mm-hmm. This is not what life is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that was my, right out of the gate, that was my first struggle. How, how does this happen? This is not supposed to happen to us. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's so as I, as I would try and gain my footing around that, it was, uh, I was disappointed in myself, actually, realizing, wow, yeah, you really do think life should be, should be easy, that it's do you. Mm-hmm. You know, grab all the gusto, or yeah. however you phrase it. Yeah, yeah grab all mm-hmm. the gusto. This is what's due me, mm-hmm. and so something uh, unjust is happening here. Mm-hmm. This is not right for me to have to go through this. Yeah. Well, in the in the beginning of the book, you you tell your story. Yeah. So why don't you why don't you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about you know what happened, yeah. and then we can go into some of these these reflections. Yeah. But I think setting up this this sense that life was good. Mm. Okay. Life was real good. Okay. Laura and I got married in 91. We're both from Indiana, moved back down here. I was working for Centex Homes. Excuse me. I uh, went on my own in 96, started building on my own. Laura, at that time, started her own business. She was doing uh, make readies for rental properties, which she still does. She's a contractor like me, much better than <laughs> I am, by the way. She should be the one building the houses. Probably got a better eye. You know, yeah, she does. About, she yes. does. Uh-huh. And so we're cruising along. We're doing fine. We're riding the real estate wave of Austin that starts basically in 91, 92, and just starts, Mm -hmm. you know, hasn't crested yet, actually. Yeah. And so we're cruising along about 2015, May of 2015. Laura goes in for a wellness visit with her doctor, and they do a full round of blood tests, which in the past... She hadn't done. It, it had just been some lipids and cholesterol and these kinds of tests, which they typically do, but not a full, you know, battery of blood work. And this was a new doctor, actually. Mm-hmm. And we get the call from the doctor, um, end of May 2015, and she says, we got an irregularity here in your um, red blood cells, your hemoglobin. It's extremely low. 
Now, typical numbers for uh, hemoglobin averages that are normal would be anywhere from 10 to 14, whatever they're measuring. I'm not sure what they're mm-hmm. measuring, but it would be 10 to 14. Laura is at, was at about 7.5. And at 7.0, uh, they will transfuse you. Wow, so she's, she's very ex- close. Yeah, yeah, she's real close. She's extremely anemic. And the doctor said, I can't find any factors that are out of range that would help me to explain why you're anemic. Mm-hmm. She said, I want you to see a, a hematologist. Hematologist is a, a code word for a, a blood cancer specialist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the first little gut punch. You, you know, what are you talking about? A hematologist? It's serious. We go in um, about a week later, and that was a really very difficult experience as we go up. We went to Texas Oncology. We go up to the second floor, and you walk in, and you're in the room with people who are fighting cancer. They've lost their hair, some of them. Some of them are wearing masks to protect Mm -hmm. them from germs. Mm -hmm. Um, And you think to yourself, "I, I don't belong here. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't want to be part of this group. I don't want to be those who are, who are trying to, you know, holding on to life. It's startling. Though, it was you? very startling. Yeah. It was a struggle. She um, gave blood. They called us back the next day and said, hey, um, we want you to come in tomorrow, and we want to do a bone marrow biopsy. Boom. There's another gut punch. Mm. What's going on here? Now we're a little scared, more than a little scared. Because when you hear cancer and bone in the same sentence, that's kind of of a problem. So we go back and they attempt to uh, draw some bone marrow in the office. And they make three attempts. And this is an excruciatingly painful experience. And I remember uh, Marsha, Laura's sister, and I were in the room when they were doing it. And I've never heard Laura scream in pain like that. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was, uh, I can't even describe it. And um, my wife is tough, and she let it do it, them do it three times. They could not draw any bone marrow. And bone marrow is a gelatinous substance, mm-hmm. easily drawn with a, with a needle. They couldn't draw any. Now we're really starting to get scared. So we spent three weeks, from that point, three weeks, knowing that something was wrong but not knowing what it was. We went back and had another uh, biopsy, this time in the hospital, and they were able to draw some bone marrow. We had an appointment with our um, uh, doctor about a week after that, so this is now two weeks. And he tells us, well, something's wrong with the bone marrow, but we don't know what it is yet. We want to do another bone marrow biopsy. Now we're way past scared. Now we're realizing, okay, we're into something here. Okay, mm. we go back in another bone marrow sample. Another week, we come back. That's when we get the diagnosis, June 25, 2015. And he says, you have myelofibrosis. And myelofibrosis is a disease that is precipitated by a gene mutation. It's cancer-like, but it is technically not cancer it doesn't, in other words, it doesn't metastasize. It doesn't leave the bone marrow. Mm-hmm. What happens is a rogue gene starts reproducing. And this rogue gene, as it reproduces, takes up the space in the bone marrow that 
needs to be there for healthy cells to produce blood. That's where okay. our blood is produced. Mm-hmm. And in her case, they said that she had quite a bit of fibrous material. In other words, the disease was clear and was, they suspected, advancing. So we learned later that she had moderate to severe case of it. And we went into a regimen of some drugs. But right away, right away, I think, I think the, the day where he gave us the diagnosis, I remember Laura asking him, is it curable? And he said, no. And of course, you can imagine our, our stomachs dropped. Oh, wow. But then he said, it's not curable in the sense of drugs, but it is curable with a bone marrow transplant. Now, we didn't know anything about bone marrow transplants. We just knew that that's not a good thing. That's yeah. pretty serious. That's intuitive. Yeah, yeah that's right. Bone marrow transplant yeah. equal bad. Not, yeah. that's, that's bad, right. Mm-hmm. So immediately we start thinking, oh, my God, are you kidding me? So in, a, in, a, in, in the span of a month, we went to Laura's Fine to she's anemic, to biopsies, to myelofibrosis, to you're going to need a bone marrow transplant in the, in the space of a month. Wow. So we're reeling. She spent then the next, what, seven, eight months taking some drug treatments, but very quickly, uh, September actually, I remember it, was her first blood transfusion because the, the, the disease was advancing and the uh, hemoglobin count would reach seven or below and they would automatically transfuse her. Mm-hmm. So she would go and get a transfusion every three weeks. And now we realized, okay, what, this is going to have to happen. We met with the transplant doctor down in San Antonio, wonderful team down there, can't say enough about them. And uh, he said, yeah, um, she's going to have to have this, uh, but we just don't know the timing. They went out uh, and started searching for a donor. They have a lot of bone marrow donor lists all around the world. And they started searching for a donor, and they said, this should be no problem. Uh, it's very easy for Caucasians to get a, a match. It's mm-hmm. much more difficult for minorities to get a match because mm-hmm. there just aren't that many out there. Yeah, bigger pool. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, six weeks into it, they hadn't found a match. You want to get a 10 out of 10 factors. You want to get a 10 match, they call it. And once they get a 10 match, they'll go to transplant. We could only get a 9, and it wasn't even what they call a good 9. So here we are facing, it was getting worse and worse as far as Laura needing transfusions. And finally, around February of 2016, this has been what now, maybe eight months, the transplant doctor says, it's time to go. We've got to get the best donor we can get, and we've got to take you to transplant. So we went to transplant uh, June 12 of that year, and she actually had the transplant June 18, mm-hmm. and um, she did it with a nine, so that carried with it a lot of complications. She um, had a lot of complications. She was in the hospital for four weeks, uh, and at that time she can't leave the floor of where she's at uh, because uh, she's so susceptible to the viruses, and if she would have cut herself at that, at that point, she, would have, she could have died because mm-hmm. what they do is they completely destroy your, bo- your bone marrow, which is your immune system, and they literally bring all of your hemoglobins, your platelets, and your white blood cells to zero. You have absolutely no immune system. Wow. Then they, they inject you mm. with this new stem cells that they get from the donor, and those stem cells, talk about God's design, those stem cells 
are injected just into a vein. And over the course of about a week to 10 days, they find their way into the bone marrow. And they start setting up shop, if you would, mm-hmm. to start producing blood. Mm-hmm. And that's a bone marrow transplant. So we spent, you know, three weeks watching numbers to see if this would take. And, and luckily it did. So she had a complication. She was in the hospital for four weeks. She was out for three weeks. Ended up getting what is called graft versus host, where the new immune system starts attacking the body. She had a very severe case of it, so severe that 80% of the people that get that severity of the case die. Hmm. So we were thinking that we, I was really thinking I'm going to lose her. We had to go back into the hospital for five weeks. She responded to treatment. She got through that. We got out, and she's been healthy hmm. and, and, and healing ever since. Wow. Yeah. Golly. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot there. I mean, that's compressing a lot of stuff, you know. Oh yeah, there's there's even more detail in the book. Uh, yeah, where where Brian develops a story, but uh, but but you went basically from a good life, a healthy life. Yeah, to thinking that she might not make it. Right. Yeah. To very very real possibility that I was going to lose her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that my life that I knew it was going to be over. And it's interesting that. On some level, I knew that our life was over once we got the diagnosis in the sense of what our life was. Okay. I didn't know what our life would be. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I, I didn't know exa- what was going on at all. I could have lost her within six months. I, I had no idea. But mm-hmm. I had a sense that, okay, things have changed. And that life that I've known is in the, is in the, uh, is in the mirror, you know, yeah. is in the rearview mirror. Yeah. And that was a... Um, Obviously, unsettling is not the right word. It was uh, really devastating Mm -hmm. to try and adjust to that. You know, you feel like, and I I say this, I talk about this in the book, you feel like you're separate from ordinary life. And I remember the feeling of those first couple of weeks once we got the diagnosis. I was actually in the middle of a project, and I remember the feeling of my trades would come on the job and they would work. And and they were lighthearted and talking about things, and they were just in their life, right, living right. their life. And I remember thinking, I wonder if that'll ever be me again, mm-hmm. to where mm-hmm. life is lighthearted and yeah. safe, right. you know, predictable, yeah. or at least we think. Mm-hmm. And I remember that feeling like, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm outside of the ordinary life now. It sounds like, like an out-of-body experience yeah. where, you, where the, if, 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 to use this analogy, you, your body was normal life. Yes. And you're out of it, and you're kind of looking at other people still in normal life. Yeah. And it's probably just dis- disorienting. Yeah, you don't know yeah. how to deal with it at first. Yeah. yeah. Well, Brian, um, I want to develop the, the ideas in the book, but this is probably a good time to lead into a break. Yeah. And then we can we can use the, the second part of the program because you're, you're um, – your ideas of giving up self yeah. and letting God really work in you, uh, it, it's very deep and profound. Mm. It, it, I, I, I see the great writers on spiritual formation there. I see, I hear Paul. Mm. Uh, you know, there's, there, there are a lot of echoes and mm. yeah. the, the shoulders of those we stand on yes. that your, your book brings out. And that's very rich. And so oh, I want to give that, that the, the good, 
a good go in the second half. So let's take a little break, yeah. and then we'll come back. So, folks, we'll, we'll take our brief break now. Uh, we invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to past programs. Uh, they're also available on your podcast app as Hill Country Institute Live. We also ask for your help in supporting this program financially, since the radio stations, they, they like to be paid. So please visit hillcountryinstitute.org to make donations, and let us know if you'd like to sponsor this program on your local radio station. You can reach us at 512-680-7993, 512-680-7993, or don- donate online at hillcountryinstitute.org. For donations over $100, we have copies of Brian's book, Touchable, Spiritual Insights from a Time of Suffering, our books on C.S. Lewis or Faith and Culture. We'll be right back with more of Hill Country Institute Live. 